Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Last week in our Through the Bible study in the Gospel of Matthew, on Sunday morning, we began looking at uh, chapter 2. As we said, a very well-known portion of Scripture, especially as we move into the Christmas season, because this portion of Scripture, of course, deals with the birth of Jesus. And we said last time that the ones that seem to stand out in this story are the wise men. But, you know, they really aren't the focus of the passage, even though they seem to take center stage here. What we really have being presented here by the Holy Spirit is the tale of two kings. The one who was the true king, someone who had the right to reign and receive worship. The other was a usurper to the throne, someone who had no right to reign or receive worship. Now, last week we looked at the true king. Of course, his name is Jesus. And we primarily focused in on that one statement by the wise men. We have come to worship him. And we talked about worship, true worship, and what it means and how important it is and how costly it is if it's done right. And so you'll have to get the CD from last week to uh, kind of get into that. But this morning, we want to look at the illegitimate king. And that, of course, is King Herod. Let's pick up the story in verse 1 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. King Herod is also known as Herod the Great. He was one of a number of rulers in the Herodian line that were in power before and during the time of Christ. The title Herod the Great doesn't refer to his greatness as a man. He was quite flawed, as we're going to see in a moment. But really is a reference to the fact that he was the eldest son of Antipater. And that's why he was called the Great or the Oldest. At the young age of 25, he was appointed by Rome to be the governor of Galilee with the hope that he could control the Jews living in the area. He did such a good job of doing that, later Rome, the Roman Senate named him King of the Jews, a title that the Jews detested because Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. You remember Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau went on to become the father of the Edomites, who were bitter enemies against the people of God, you know, perennial enemies. So to call an Edomite the king of the Jews, you can see how the Jews would have chafed a little bit under that. Uh, to them, it didn't matter what Rome called him, king of the Jews, whatever. They knew he was an interloper. They knew he had no right to reign or receive worship as king. Don't forget the word for worship in Greek is not a word that's used exclusively of God. It's not a holy word as such. It's used of any monarch or any dignitary that uh, was above you. And so often the word is used with regard to earthly kings and governors. And the word simply means to pay homage to, to reverence, to make obeisance to. But not only did Herod not have the right pedigree to rule, he didn't even have the right personality. What do I mean? Herod was a cruel, paranoid little guy. He's only about five foot tall. I don't know if he had a little man's complex or what, but he had quite a big attitude. And 
he held on tightly to the reins of power and brutally, brutally dealt with anyone he thought might be a threat to his throne. Over the years, he killed many people, including his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, two of his sons, even his wife, because he thought they might be conspiring against him. Five days before his death, about a year to a year and a half after Jesus was born, he had a third son executed, which prompted Augustus, the Roman emperor, to say it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. I think one of the greatest examples of his insane cruelty was that he knew he was gravely ill at this time, so what he did was he had many of the distinguished, well-liked citizens of Jerusalem arrested and put in prison. See, here's what he thought. He thought, you know, when I die, nobody's going to mourn for me, and I don't want singing and, and happiness in town. So he gave orders to his soldiers that the moment he died, they were to execute all these well-liked, influential people of the city. That way there would be some mourning in Jerusalem. Thankfully, the soldiers didn't carry out that order when Herod dies, uh, died, but it does show you what, uh, what a uh, twisted uh, narcissist he really was. Now, with that background, you can understand why when the wise men came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Why that was troubling to Herod and all Jerusalem, because all Jerusalem knew, you get this little nut job fired up, we're all in trouble. He takes it out in all of us, all right? See, the word trouble there in the Greek is a word that means to shake violently, and no wonder. See, Herod figured after he had subdued all his enemies and killed all his foes, and finally he had come to a place where he felt secure, that his throne was secure, suddenly these Persian wise guys showed up. Say, hey, where's the king boy? We got, we got word. There's a star in the sky. It says the, the king of the Jews has been born. What? See, that troubled Herod. Let's pick it up in verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Herod wanted to know from the prophecies of the what we call our Old Testament, of course the Jews called it their holy scriptures, but Herod wanted to know from the Jewish religious leaders what the prophets said about where this Christ would be born. Uh, they didn't even have to go and say, well, can you give us a couple of days? They knew exactly where to go. And they quoted right from Micah 5, verse 2. They said, he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, you don't have to turn there, but if you go to Micah 5, verse 2, it says that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. See, there were several Bethlehems in Israel back then. So the prophet wanted to be specific. He said, the Messiah shall be born in Bethlehem, in the county of Ephrathah, in the province or in the tribal region of Judah, Judea. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. And it was a fitting place for the bread of life, Jesus Christ, to be born. In verse 7 we read, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him 
also. Herod pretended to honor the Christ child with words of sincerity and devotion, which really only served to hide his real intentions, which was to do away with this child, this threat to his throne, as soon as he could locate him. Verse 9 we read, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The word translated young child refers to a toddler or a small child, not to a newborn baby. We dealt with this last week. All right, We talked about this. Our Christmas cards and Christmas pageants and manger scenes always depict the wise men there by the manger, right? Uh, with the camels and with their gifts in hand and, and near them are the shepherds. All there when Jesus was born pretty much. Well, that is biblically inaccurate. The shepherds were there, of course. Luke chapter 2 tells us the angels announced to the shepherds right away in the fields of Bethlehem that a Savior had been born. And so they went and they saw the Christ child not long after Jesus had been born. But these wise men, it took them roughly a year to a year and a half to get to Jerusalem. By this time, Jesus is no longer in a manger. They've moved into a house, verse 11 tells us, right? He's no longer a baby. The Greek word signifies a toddler. And they give to him three gifts, which we said last time were significant. The gold speaks of his kingship. The frankincense, his priesthood. He's our great high priest. And myrrh, which was a uh, spice used to bury with the dead bodies, spoke of his death and resurrection. These were very costly gifts worthy of this king born in, in the Bethlehem. We read in verse 12, Then being divinely warned in a dream, that they should not return to Herod. They departed for their own country another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and uh, was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's a reference to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Egypt was a natural place for Joseph to take uh, Mary and the baby Jesus to. It was not that far away. It was about 75 miles from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt. Besides that, Egypt was a well-ordered Roman province, well beyond Herod's jurisdiction, number one, and secondly, it had a very large Jewish population, roughly a million people. The treasures given by the wise men would have been more than enough to finance the trip. And once down there, Joseph no doubt would have hooked up with family or friends. They could help him find work. So it was a, it was a logical place for them to, to flee to. Verse 16 we read, when Herod, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men. That's a very strong Greek word. That he was deceived. He was played like a sucker, we would say. He was he was made a joke out of is the idea. He wasn't happy about that at all. When he, when he saw he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem 
and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. See, when Herod called these wise men in and said, Look, about what time did you first see this star? They must have told him it was about a year, 14 months ago, all right? And that would have been about right, because it would have taken them that long to get to Bethlehem. First of all, they had to, to make preparations for such a long journey. It's about a nine-month journey. It's all over the desert, you know, you're, you're on foot, camels carrying things, supplies. It took a while to organize and put together a journey like that and then to actually make the trip. So by the time they got there, it was a good year, probably more, since Jesus had been born. So Herod figured, well, they saw the star about a year, maybe a year and a half. I'm going to go and have my soldiers kill all the baby boys from two years old and under. I'm going to make sure this so-called Christ child doesn't slip through the cracks. I'm going to make sure he never ascends to the throne. I'm going to stay in power. It's the kind of guy he was. Now, the prophecy that Matthew quotes in verse 18 is from Jeremiah 3, excuse me, 31, verse 15. And this quotation in Jeremiah originally referred to the mourning of Israel's mothers during the Babylonian conquest and captivity of the nation. This happened about 600 B.C. roughly. How that the mothers were weeping as they saw their sons and daughters being killed by the Babylonians and many others marched off into captivity in Babylon. Now, Matthew takes it and says, all right, but the ultimate fulfillment... Uh, that the Lord had in mind when he gave that prophecy in Jeremiah was this occurrence right here. And he kind of pictures the uh, parents of uh, Bethlehem weeping as they passed by the tomb of Rachel. Rachel was buried there in Ramah. That was where her tomb was. And so they, the prophet kind of pictures Rachel weeping with them because the children, the, the little young boys in Bethlehem, had been brutally murdered. Verse 19 says, but when Herod was dead. This probably was only a short time. I don't think Joseph and Mary and Jesus were in Egypt too long. It only took probably a few months before Herod finally died. History tells us that by the time the wise men got to Herod uh, to ask him about the birth of the Christ child, uh, Herod was already gravely ill. So he didn't have long to go. We read in verse 19, but when Herod was dead... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, Archelaus, of course, was one of Herod's sons, just as brutal as Herod. So they didn't want to go back there. He was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this is the fourth time in this chapter that Matthew tells us that Jesus Christ fulfilled various Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Remember, we talked about this when we first got into Matthew. 
We said how that Matthew, as a Jew, wants to present to Israel their Messiah, King Jesus. But he knows if he's going to present Jesus as the Messiah, he's got to prove that he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. So over and over again, you'll read that statement. This was done that it might be fulfilled by what the Lord said to the prophet, saying, and he gives another Old Testament prophecy to substantiate the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the one prophesied about in our Old Testament, their Jewish scriptures. However, this last prophecy that Matthew mentions in verse 23, that the, the prophets had foretold that Messiah would be called a Nazarene, that last prophecy has created some controversy. You see, nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever directly say that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Now, Matthew says that when they moved to Nazareth, him and his family, it was fulfilled which was spoken through the prophets, saying he shall be called a Nazarene. You go back into the Old Testament, we can't find any prophet that actually said that. So now what do we do? Well, scholars have said, well, there's a couple of solutions to this. Number one, they believe that um, it could be a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, which says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's a, a messianic prophecy. The word branch in Hebrew is the Hebrew word netzer, and it has the same exact consonants as the word Nazarene. So it might be a little play on words. We don't know. Others say, well, no, because Matthew says that which was spoken by the prophets, plural, he doesn't have any one specific prophecy in mind. He's combining several prophecies, and he's not saying that Jesus would live in Nazareth, but that he would be considered a Nazarene. What does that mean? Uh, the Nazarenes, those who lived in Nazareth, were hated. There was a Roman garrison posted in Nazareth. It was a real debauched town. No self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with Nazareth or anybody from Nazareth. Don't you remember when Philip came to Nathaniel in John chapter 1 and said, Look, we have found the Messiah, the ones the prophets have spoken about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it could be what Matthew was alluding to is that there are prophecies that spoke of how Messiah would be despised. He would be considered a despised individual. And in that regard, Nazareth became the perfect idiom to use of someone despised. So I'll let you wrestle with that, all right? Beautiful thing about it is I don't have to figure everything out. I can barely figure out the stuff I'm supposed to figure out. But look, in case your eyes are getting a little glazed over now, okay? It's not my desire to give you a history or a prophecy lesson this morning, okay? But we, we want to cover this, all right? And, uh, and all. But going back to the statement I made at the beginning, beginning of this message, what we really have being presented here by the Holy Spirit is the tale of two kings. The tale of two kings. First, we see King Jesus presented. He is the true king. In fact, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? He is the one who is worthy to reign and receive worship and honor and glory from us. The other king we see presented here is the usurper. He is Herod the Great. He's great in his own eyes, but not in the eyes of God. Herod, of course, had no right to reign or to receive worship. And through this historical account, the Holy Spirit is presenting 
in type now, in type, the classic battle for dominance between the flesh and the spirit. You see, Herod represents the flesh, or in other words, our fallen nature. Our fallen nature. That part of us that wants to sit on the throne of our lives and be king, right? That part of us that wants to be in absolute control to do what we want, when we want to do it, without any interference from anyone, especially from God. We see the rebellious heart of man portrayed in defiance of, the, of his creator's right to reign over our lives in William Henley's classic poem, Invictus. Let me read it to you. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet but the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I'm not afraid to die. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. Remember what Jesus said? Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and only if you find it. That's what Henley's talking about. Or in Revelation 20, when all those who have rejected Christ stand before him and the books of the scrolls are opened and everyone is judged according to their works. Henley goes, I don't care about straight gates or, or scrolls full of, of punishment. He said, I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. See, defiant, rebellious man says, look, I'm the uh, master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And God says, that's right, but you're in mutiny. You're in mutiny against the one who made you. You are doing your own thing in defiance of my will. But see, rebels, that's their anthem. That's their anthem. Do you realize that that was the last thing that Timothy McVeigh recited before being executed for his part in the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995? He recited Henley's Invictus, defiant to the end. I think I've told you guys about uh, Joseph Stalin, brutal butcher, dictator, slaughtered, I don't know, 60 million, 68 million of his own people. On his deathbed, his daughter, I forgot her name, was standing by him, was attending his death. She later told this story to Ravi Zachariah, the great Christian apologist. I heard it from him. Not per we didn't have coffee, but I mean, I was listening, I, I was listening to a, my iPod. Would have been nice, yeah. He won't return my phone calls for some reason, I don't know. Anyway, but he was telling the story, how that Stalin's daughter was standing by his bedside. Now, he's just moments away from death. And she related a blood-chilling thing. Right before he died, he sat up in bed, and he shook his fist defiantly toward heaven, and then fell back to bed and died. Wow. That is truly amazing. But see, that is the defiant heart of man, embodied in our fallen nature. King Herod represents the fallen nature of man that wants to rule, that wants to reign, but has no right to. Then we see the true king, Jesus, the only one who has the right to reign over our lives. You know why? Because he is the one who made us. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made, John tells us. 
Jesus Christ made us. And he made us for himself. That we might serve him and that we might honor him and worship him with our lives as the only true sovereign and Lord over our lives. But you see, as Herod fought to remain on the throne and went as far as to try to do away with the rightful king, even so the flesh will try to do whatever it takes to stay in control, even if it means doing away with God. Even if it means doing away with God. And I really believe this is what is driving the current rise of atheism in our country. I really believe this. It's a deliberate doing away with God so that people can sin without guilt. See, the Bible says God has written his laws in our hearts. And when we violate those laws, those rules, he has given us an alarm system that sounds. It's called our conscience. And the way it sounds the alarm is we feel guilty. Now, that feels kind of lousy, doesn't it? When you're doing what you want to do, but there's a party that says it's not really right to do that because God says it's not right, you do it anyway, what do you feel? You feel guilt. And guilt doesn't feel so good. So what do you do? Well, you get rid of God. No God, no rules, no God, no guilt. So you just get rid of God. See, this is what Paul referred to in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, when he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen, who suppress the truth about God in their desire to live unrighteously. It's not that people don't really know there's a God. I know there's some people that have convinced themselves there is no God, and they really believe that. But for most people, it's not that they don't believe that there is a God. It's that they want to live unrighteously, so they suppress that knowledge. Because if they don't, well, there's all that guilt you've got to deal with. You know, I've heard honest atheists say this very thing. I heard one guy on the radio say, well... I'm an atheist, and I'm an atheist because if I believed in God, that would mean that I would be obligated to live according to his rules, and I'm not willing to do that. Well, you know what? You're an honest guy, all right? You're an honest guy, because that really is what is at the heart of this. I really believe that is at the core of what's driving the new, this new rise of atheism, and it's everywhere, isn't it? Books written by atheists are on the bestseller list. A lot of people, I, went, I visited a couple atheist sites yesterday in preparing for this study, looked at some of the blogs, people were glowing. Oh, what wonderful information. Oh, thank you, can't wait to learn more about how I can kill God. Get rid of God. So I can basically, didn't say it that way, but I'm paraphrasing, all right? You know, at the heart of atheism is rebellion. Rebellion against God, his laws, and his right to rule on the throne of their life. I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 14, verse 1. He said, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Those who say that, he said, are corrupt and have done abominable works. There is none of them who does good. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, what the Hebrew actually says is, The fool says in his heart, No God. No God. Is he saying there is no God? Or is he saying... I believe there's a God, but I don't want him messing with my life. No, God, you're not coming in here. No, God, you're not going to interfere in my life. You're not going to tell me what to do. Is it more a statement of the, not believing in the existence of God or simply not willing to bow to the authority of God? You can choose for yourself. I think it's probably a little both. Now, at this point, 
There are many who would say, wait a minute, I'm no atheist. I believe in God. I'm a good person. I go to church. I try to help the poor. Wonderful. You know what? You're like Herod. You're like Herod. Herod was that way. If you study what Herod did, in times of severe economic hardship, he gave some tax money collected from the people back to them. Hey, he's a better guy than we got in office today, many of these folks. He's given tax money back to help people. During the great famine of 25 BC, he melted down various gold objects in the palace to buy food for the poor. In 19 BC, he actually started to refurbish the temple of God in Jerusalem. He made it one of the great wonders of the ancient world. People would look at this life and go, his life and go, you know what? In a lot of ways, he's really not a bad guy. But like Herod, it's not that our fallen nature won't motivate us to do some good at times. If the end result is self-promotion or self-satisfaction, in other words, if others come to think of us as wonderful people, or we come away feeling good about ourselves, or if we are benefited in some way, then often our fallen nature will motivate us to do good things. Often these good works, so-called, are religious in nature. You know, going to church, observing holy days. As a Roman Catholic, we used to light candles. We liked to pray the rosary. My buddy and I, when we went to Catholic grade school together during lunch, we'd finish up quickly eating our lunch, going to the, into the chapel there, and do a couple laps around the chapel doing the Stations of the Cross. Because, you know, all around the chapel there were, you know, there were the Stations of the Cross. And so you quickly try to get two or three laps in because, I mean, the more you said that thing, it, it helped you somehow. You know, all these things made me, as a Roman Catholic, feel right with God. And others, the same thing. Religion and religious works make people feel that they're good people and they're right with God. You know, Herod sounded like one of these kind of folks. When he said to the wise men in verse 8, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word to me that I may come and worship him also. We know from the story that Herod was being a total phony here when he said that. He had no intention of really worshiping Jesus. But you know what? There's a lot of religious people who go to church and they worship, quote-unquote, the Lord. But they really have no intention. I mean, they worship him with their lips, but they really have no intention of really worshiping him with their lives. And that is because, listen, we touched on this last week. That is because true worship is all about getting off the throne of your life and inviting Jesus to come in and take his rightful place as the king of your life. When you do that, you become what the Bible calls a true worshiper. A true worshiper of the true king, which is the direct opposite to the rebellion of a self-governing, self-worshipping life. Look, in the practical sense, as we bring this to a close, it often takes a Christian years, and in some cases a lifetime, to learn the day-by-day submission that is involved in a truly surrendered life. But that's where it starts when you say to Jesus, I surrender. That's not when it ends, though, right? Every day you have to surrender that day to the Lord. Every single day of your life. It's a new surrendering. It's saying, Lord, today I surrender my life anew to you. That you might be the king, the Lord of my life. That I am your slave to go where you are leading and to do what you want me to do. Look, rebellion against God is at the heart of all of man's problems. And folks, hear me, not just all of fallen man's problems. 
There's a lot of rebellion in the church today. There's a lot of Christians who say to the Lord, Lord, you're in charge. But when it comes to the tough decisions, when it comes to the difficult problems, they take matters back into their own hands. And many times are involved in open rebellion. And this leads to all kinds of problems. And I know that down here we're working our salvation out with fear and trembling. I know we're not perfect here. Like I said, sometimes it takes a lifetime to learn how to really surrender to God fully. And I realize if you're a Christian, even though you and I blow it at times in doing that, we're on the road, aren't we? We want to do more. and We want to make Jesus absolute sovereign king over our, our lives, even though sometimes we mess up and take things back and try to work things out ourselves. But there are many people on the earth who have no intention, like Herod, of ever giving the Lord control of their life. It's amazing to me that a lot of these folks go to church. And they pretend to be worshipers, just like Herod. But in reality, they leave this place and go out into their, their daily life. And they, don't have no, they have no desire, really, to turn their daily lives over to Jesus, where he is really their Lord. Lord of their businesses, Lord of their decisions, Lord of what they watch on TV, Lord of where they go, Lord of who they hang out with, Lord of how they spend their money, etc. Let me just tell you this, though. Heaven will be a place from which all... Rebels and all rebellion are excluded. Heaven is going to be a place where only true worshipers live. And it starts right now by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, right now. Let me end with this. You've heard me say this. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, The Great Divorce, by the way, it's a book that has nothing to do with marriage. But C.S. Lewis made a very, very insightful observation. He said, either you and I, either we will say to Jesus right now, not my will, but your will be done. Or he will say to us someday, not my will, but your will be done. What does that mean? The idea is surrender. If a person doesn't bow the knee to Christ right now and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. You are now my king. You are the one who is in control. Not my will anymore, but now I live to do your will. If you don't, and you don't have to because we have a free will, we said that William Henley and Tim McVeigh and a lot of others have defiantly held on to their right to rule their own lives. They have said to the Lord on this earth, not your will, but my will be done. So when they die and stand before the Lord, he's going to say to them, you know what? Not my will, but your will be done. See, my will was to save you. My will was to take you to live with me forever in heaven. You refused my will. You hung on to your will. Now with a broken heart, I have to tell you, it's not going to be my will now. Because you've made your choice. Now, your will be done. You wanted nothing to do with me in life, and now I will have nothing to do with you for eternity. That is quite a sobering thought. And so that's why the Bible says... Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Get on your knees, confess your sins, and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, that he may sit down on the throne of your heart and begin to rule over your life. Because it's all about worshiping him. 
So may God give you the grace to understand how important this chapter really is. It's a great chapter to read at Christmas time, isn't it? But there's a whole lot more going on here than just the Christmas story. It's a story about eternity and the choices we make in this life of who we're going to worship and how they'll affect how we live forever. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for opening our eyes to your truth. We praise you, Lord, and thank you that you have turned rebels like us into worshipers who, like the wise men, now say to you, we have come, Lord Jesus, to worship you. We just praise you, Lord. I pray for everyone here this morning, especially for those that do not know you, Lord, that they would not live in defiance and rebellion against you one more day, even if they go to church and do a lot of good religious things. If they are still in the throne of their heart, well, they're still in control, and they are not true worshipers. Lord, give them grace to understand they need to fall on their face before you, confess their sins, and ask you to sit on the throne and be the Lord of their lives. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.